We come this evening to a consideration of the words that are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 7 and verse 4, the fourth verse in the seventh chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, we began a very general examination of this verse at the end of last Friday evening. And we indicated that here, of course, in this verse, the apostle comes to the application of uh, what he has been saying in the first three verses, and especially the application of the illustration which he has been using in verses 2 and 3. The illustration, you remember, with respect to marriage, which he has brought in in order to explain to us our relationship to the law and our standing before God in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we dealt with the mechanical aspect of this verse, the question of the switch, as it were, which seems to be taking place in the application. And we saw that that makes no difference at all to the understanding of what is the Apostle's obvious meaning. And then we just dealt in general with that point which often causes so much trouble, namely the precise relationship of the Christian to the law. We attempted a definition of what it means to be under the law and no longer under the law. We saw that there are certain dangers that always confront the Christian. One is the danger of legalism, and the other extreme, of course, is antinomianism. And constantly the devil tries to press us to one or the other of these extremes. That is why it is so important that we should be clear as to the teaching here of our relationship to the law. Very well, having done that, we are able, as I said at the end of last week, to face a positive exposition of the principles taught us in this verse. It is Again, one of those verses, uh, several of which we found already, in which the Apostle seems to give us a complete summary of the whole of the Christian life. He was very fond of doing that. We've seen examples of it in the previous chapter and in all the pre previous chapters. But here he does it once more. He never seems to be content with saying just uh, a part of the truth. He so gloried in the truth that he liked to state it all again. And he repeats it all again once more. Here then, once more, we have, as it were, the gospel in a nutshell. Uh, it's one of these great uh, basic definitions of what it means to be a Christian. And, of course, it at the same time and of necessity shows us the profound character of the Christian life. And that is why it is worth a while to give it uh, our attention, undivided attention, and allow it to speak to us. 
there can be no doubt at all but that the greatest trouble with all of us and the greatest trouble with the whole church today is our failure to realize the full and the deep character of the Christian life. We are constantly defining it, thinking of it, speaking of it, in terms that fall hopelessly short of what we are taught here and what indeed we are taught everywhere in the New Testament. Superficiality is the greatest curse of the Christian. We have our little definitions. We take up certain aspects of the Christian life and we miss its profundities, its true greatness and depth and largeness. Well, now, here it is, I say, put before us again. So let us follow the apostle as he leads us on. There is a sense in which it is true to say that what he's telling us in this verse is really what he's already told us in chapter 6 and in verse 11, where he said, Likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. And in a way, he's also said it in verse 17 of that chapter. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. But it is in particular a kind of elaboration and a restatement in slightly different terms of the 11th verse of the 6th chapter. But as the apostle repeats it, we'll repeat it, because we will find that there are particular emphases again, which he brings out here, which he hasn't brought out in exactly the same way in his previous summaries. Now, it seemed to me that the best way of looking at this matter was to take it like this. First of all, let us look at this verse as it gives us a general description of the Christian life, a general definition of it, if you like. It's here for us on the surface. What does it tell us? Well, it tells us immediately that to be a Christian means that we have an entirely new life. You see, he talks in terms of being dead and alive. To be Christian is nothing less than that. It involves a death and a rising. The change, the difference, if you like, between the Christian and the non-Christian is therefore obviously a radical one. The difference between the non-Christian and the Christian isn't merely a slight one. And to become a Christian doesn't mean that you just modify a little of what you were before or add just a little to it or make it look a little bit better, brush it up as it were. Now, there are many people, as you know, who conceive of Christianity in those terms. To become a Christian, they think, means that you just stop doing certain things and you begin to do others. There's a slight readjustment in your life, a slight modification. Some things dropped, some things added. Uh, somewhat of an improvement, a better life than the life that you lived before. Well, of course, all that is perfectly true, but uh, that isn't Christianity. Whatever our definition of Christianity is, it must include this notion of a death and a life. Nothing less than that. In other words, to be Christian means to undergo the profoundest change that one can 
ever know. Nothing less than that. That is why we all know that the New Testament terms for becoming Christian are terms like these. Ye must be born again. There it is. You are a new creation. A new creature or a new creation. It is nothing less than regeneration. And generation, of course, is fundamental. It is the giving of life and bringing into being. Well, it's a, a regeneration. Nothing less than that. Well, now, here it is on the very surface of this. A Christian is a man who's become dead and he's alive again. So that here, at once, you see, and on the very surface, we are made to realize that to be a Christian is not a small thing, it's not an easy thing, and that the difference, I say, between the Christian and the non-Christian is not a slight one. It is the biggest difference that is possible between two human beings. It is the difference between life and death. Nothing less than that. Now, I think you see why I was justified in saying what I was saying a few moments ago, that the main trouble with most of us in the church today is that our whole concept of the Christian life is much too small. We seem to have lost this notion, though we may pay lip service to it, that it involves as radical a process and as radical a change as this. That's the first thing. I'm simply picking out now things that stand out on the surface. We are taking a general view of the Christian as he is described in this verse. So the second is this. It means uh, that uh, the man who has become a Christian is in an entire new relationship. That's the thing that the Apostle is emphasizing here, of course, in particular. To be a Christian means that you are now in an entirely new relationship to God. Before your relationship to God was one through the law. It is now through the Lord Jesus Christ. What a change that is. My whole standing is different. My position, my status, as I stand before God, it's altogether different from what it was before. Here again is another thing you see, which shows us the profound character of the Christian life. So that as we talk about it and speak about it, we must always include this notion that there has been an entire change in our relationship to God. We were under law, we are now under grace. Very well, there's the second thing. The third thing is this. That to be Christian means that we have an entirely new purpose in life. The purpose is, as he tells us here, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, the man who is not a Christian doesn't have that purpose at all. The man who is not a Christian is a man who lives for himself. He's bringing forth fruit unto himself. He lives to satisfy himself. He is self-centered, egocentric. Absolutely. I don't care how good a man he is. If a man is not a Christian, he is always egocentric. He's proud of his morality. He's proud that he's not like these other people. He looks at them with disdain. All along, he is pleasing himself, his own standard, 
his own effort, his own attempt, always himself. He revolves around himself, egocentric. But the man who's become a Christian is a man who's got an entirely new purpose. And his purpose is to bring forth fruit unto God. These are basic definitions of what it means to be a Christian. And the first general thing which is indicated here on the surface is this one. That the Christian is a man who has been provided with an entirely new ability, new power, new strength. Certain things have happened to him in order that he should bring forth fruit unto God. He couldn't before, he can now. There is a new ability, there is a new power which has entered into the life of this man. Well now then, there I say are four things uh, lying here obviously on the surface of the verse which are always true about the Christian. And therefore if we would know uh, for sure and for certain whether we are Christians or not, well, here are four very superficial tests that we can apply to ourselves. Can you say quite honestly, I am not the person I once was. I have been born again. I'm a different person. That's the first thing. New life. It doesn't mean that of necessity it is always very strong or very powerful. You can be a babe in Christ. Yes, but a babe, you see, has got life and new life. A babe is not as strong as a grown-up person, an adult person, but he has life, not as much life, but he has life. And the question I'm asking is, are we aware of the fact that there is this new life in us? Not so much that we've done something as that something has happened to us which causes us to be a bit surprised at ourselves and amazed at ourselves and to wonder at ourselves that this is true of us now which wasn't true before. Let me, uh, for your encouragement and comfort, my dear friends, and especially those who may feel that they're very weak and are doubtful about their position, let me uh, suggest some few simple tests to you. What are the tests of life? Well, here are some of them. The Apostle Peter tells us as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Can I even put it like this? Can you enjoy a meeting like this? Because believe me that by nature you wouldn't have enjoyed it. There are people in the world tonight who would regard this as the height of boredom. They wouldn't know what I'm talking about and they'd feel that I shouldn't be talking about it. They'd say, what is all that? What does it mean? What's it got to do with me? And they'd never want to hear it anymore. Does this sort of thing appeal to you? Do you like it? Do you enjoy it? Would you like to know more about it? Well, if you can say yes to those questions, you can take it from me that you've got new life in you. You may only be a babe, but thank God you're born again. You're in Christ. Don't be misled by people who would apply the test of a mature, adult, grown, fully grown Christian to a newborn babe. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he, for they are spiritually discerned. If you therefore receive these things, though you may be living an unworthy life, take it from me, you are born again. The natural mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. If you can say honestly that your desire is to know God and to serve him, you are a child of God. You may be imperfect, I'm not excusing you, but I've got to get this thing clear. Because if you're made to feel because of your failures, as I was saying a fortnight ago, that you're not a Christian at all, well then you're in a, in a position where you've got to go right back to the beginning once more. Therefore I say, don't let any legalist cause you even to doubt of your position. The newborn babe desires the milk, the sincere milk of the word that he may grow thereby. He's interested in spiritual things. His understanding may be very small and very incomplete, but if he's got even a glimmer, and if he wants more of it, and if he likes it and likes to be amongst God's people, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Very well. Here are some of these tests which we can apply to ourselves. What the apostle is saying is that you can't be a Christian without a death and a birth, a life. And then go on and let us apply the other tests to ourselves in exactly the same way. Can you say now, quite truthfully, that when you do think of God, and when you turn to God, you no longer do it with the slavish fear that you once had, but that you now have some consciousness within you that God is your Father, and that God loves you. Your assurance may not be a very clear one, but is there even that difference? Are you aware that however incomplete it may be, there is some fundamental difference and change in your relationship to God? Before you went before him as a condemned criminal, do you find that now you go before him as a child that feels very ashamed of himself or herself? Are you conscious that you're now offending not so much against the law as against love? Are you aware of this filial child relationship rather than the old legal one? That's what he's saying. And then you go on to your third test. Can you say quite honestly and truthfully, that you really have got a new purpose in your life. That however unworthily you are carrying it out, that your real purpose is to serve God. Are you concerned about this in a new way? No longer that old mechanical, legal way, but in this living way, this vital way, because of your new relationship and because of this love you have for God, however weak and imperfect it may be. Are you now governed by a new purpose? As you face life and you're living in this world. Well, I'm sure that as you face these questions, you will know exactly where you stand. The danger here always is to jump to details. Keep to these principles. That's why I'm putting it in this form at the beginning this evening. If you are aware of a central change and a new central purpose, 
I say, you're a child of God. And do you know something about this new ability? This new power? Oh, you may be very weak, I say. You may still be failing a great deal. But can you say, well, as even as I am, I am aware of something in me that's working in me which wasn't there before. If it may be merely negative in a sense, as a counteraction against sin, and an increasing dislike of sin, and indeed nothing more perhaps than an increasing desire to be delivered from sin, that is indicative of this new power, this new ability, this new strength that is given to all who are truly Christian. Now I'm deliberately putting it at its lowest level. And I do that, I say, because that one finds so frequently that the babes in Christ are offended by legalists, by those who take it upon themselves to pronounce judgment when they're not in a position to do so, and who haven't sufficient understanding to see that it is this essential difference of nature that is of prime importance. It is a very grievous thing to discourage a babe in Christ. We are to encourage babes to help them. Oh, but you say, you're encouraging them to be antinomians. No, you're not. If you really get them to see and to know what they are as babes in Christ, that's the thing that's going to stimulate the growth and give them the greatest desire to continue. Read your New Testament epistles and you will see that that is how the babes are constantly dealt with. Oh, yes, you can reprimand them. You've got to train them and teach them and discipline them. But what we must never do is to discourage them. And what is, I feel, a grievous sin is to suggest to them that they're not alive at all simply because they're only babes. That is sheer misunderstanding of the Scripture. Very well. There are our uh, superficial Remarks about the Christian as they're indicated in this verse. You take a general view of him. Yes, these are the things that must be there. Whatever the degree, they must be there. And if they are there, whatever the degree, well then, such a person is a Christian. All right, let's go on to a second matter. If these are the things that characterize the Christian, how does one become a Christian? How is it possible for anybody to get into this condition or this position which I have been describing? And the Apostle deals with that here also in a very clear manner. The first thing, of course, that he tells us, as he tells us everywhere, that it is altogether and entirely in and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The body of Christ. Yes, Christ is here. Without him, there's no Christianity. I mustn't stay with this this evening. I trust that I can assume in a meeting like this that we're all perfectly clear about this. That there is no such thing as Christianity without the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is in him and it is in him alone. And it is in him from the very beginning to the very end. I leave this in this form. As you good friends may talk to other people, and as you begin to think that perhaps uh, their whole position is indeed questionable, 
The first thing you do with them is to make them talk. You make them talk, I mean, about uh, what they conceive a Christian to be. And if they regard themselves as Christians, as to why they regard themselves as Christians. Encourage them to talk along those lines. And observe one thing only. Whether the name of the Lord Jesus Christ comes into it at all or not. You will find quite frequently that people will talk at great length and they won't even mention his name. I think I've said this before. I repeat it. The test which I find is the crucial one is to ask such a person, now, if you had to die tonight and to stand before God, what would you say? On what would you rely? What would your position be? Put that question to them. And you will find quite frequently that they'll attempt to answer that question without even mentioning the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm afraid there's only one thing to say about them, and that is that they're not Christians. Christianity is Christ. He is central. He is vital. He is all in all. It doesn't matter how good a life may be, how excellent it may be, if it isn't entirely dependent upon this person and what he's done, it isn't Christianity. It may be morality. It may be some other religion. But it isn't Christianity. You can have religion without Christianity. You can have morality without Christianity. But the thing that makes Christianity Christian is the centrality, is the cruciality of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Any claim that is therefore made without directly relating it all to him proves at once that it is not Christian at all. I leave it, but God forbid that anybody should be uncertain about that. I do hope that there's nobody in this congregation who thinks that he or she is a Christian simply because you've been born in this country, or simply because you were baptized or christened, call it what you like, when you were an infant, or that you were baptized when you were an adult, or that you were taken into church membership by a minister in consultation with your parents. If that's your notion, well, I say you've got to go back to the very beginning. If it isn't entirely dependent upon this blessed person, it is not Christianity at all. It is some sham, some counterfeit. Now you notice that I'm not putting it in terms of the life lived. I am putting it in terms of relationship to him. That's the thing, as I was even saying under my general examination. Well now then, here is the first thing the apostle says. He must be in the very center. Everything must be focusing upon him. But you see, the apostle doesn't leave it at that. That's a general statement. It's perfectly right. But before we are clear as to how we become Christians, we've got to particularize. And the apostle at once proceeds to particularize. How does he do so? Well, he singles out those things in the Lord Jesus Christ that are absolute essentials to our salvation. What are these? Well, here, of course, we come again to the realm of doctrine. Let us be clear about this, my friends. We must know as to how we are saved. That is the teaching of the New Testament Scriptures. That is what they're for, is to teach us how we are saved. It's no use a man saying, well, I'm a Christian, but I can't tell you how. I don't understand all about these doctrines and all about theology. I'm just a simple person. 
A Christian doesn't speak like that. A Christian is supposed to know how he is saved. And this one verse really tells us the whole thing, essentially. Not enough to say, yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ? What in particular do you believe about him? Well, the apostle leads us to see. We become Christians, therefore, in this way. First of all, because of certain things that have happened to him. What do you mean, says someone? Well, I am referring to his death. Wherefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Now then, here you are. Here's our particular. Here is our essential doctrine. How does the Lord Jesus Christ save me? Is it simply by his incarnation? No. I must believe in his incarnation. I'm told here about his body. God is spirit. And here is the second person in the blessed Godhead. But he has a body. He is incarnate. I must believe that. I must believe in his coming from heaven to earth. That the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It includes that. But that isn't the crucial thing, says Paul. He doesn't do it by his incarnation. Neither does he save me by his teaching. He taught a lot. He taught the Sermon on the Mount. Does the Sermon on the Mount save me? Of course it doesn't. It condemns me. So he doesn't save me by his teaching. He didn't come into the world simply to say, this is how you ought to live. Now do this and you'll be Christians and God will receive you and forgive you. No, no. It wasn't by his teaching. Neither was it by his example. These are the things that are taught, aren't they? Incarnation, teaching, example, a Philip to our endeavor, and encouragement and so on. No, no, says the apostle. The crucial thing is his death. Wherefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. Why this also? Well, because he became dead to the law. He died to the law. So he's talking about his death. Yes, and let us notice this. There is more than one word that the apostle could have used here to bring in this notion of death. But he deliberately chose the word for death, which is the most violent word that he could have chosen. Why did he do that? Well, to remind us of that violent death of the Son of God upon the cross, on Calvary's hill. It was a cruel form. It was a violent form. He didn't die merely. He was put to death. That's what he's saying. That's the word he's chosen. He was put to a violent death. He's referring to what happened on the cross on Calvary's hill. And he's doing so quite deliberately. Yet, because he knows how ready we are to miss this or to wander away from it, he even brings in the word body. We are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Again, you see, materializing it, reminding us of the actual fact that we are not saved by some idea, but we are saved by something that was done to the Lord Jesus Christ in his body as he died there on the cross on Calvary's hill. We are saved by historical facts and events by things that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now then, what was it that happened? That is the question. What was taking place there? 
when the Lord Jesus Christ was dying upon the cross on Calvary's hill. And the apostle makes it plain to us here that whatever else it was, it was something that was happening quite directly in connection with the law. You also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Now then, here you see, we are face to face with the great doctrine of the atonement. And you notice how the apostle slips it in? In dealing with this matter, he's concerned ultimately, as we saw in our introduction, with a very practical point, namely sanctification. But you see, he can't deal with sanctification without his great doctrines. Here he comes in the doctrine of the atonement. Let me put it as a question. Why did the Son of God die upon the cross? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ say that he could, if he willed, have commanded twelve legions of angels and have avoided death and have been carried up to heaven? Why didn't he avoid death? Why did he die? And the answer is, as this verse clinches once and forever, we've already seen it, of course, in chapter 3, in that great section beginning at verse 24. But here it is once more, and in a very excellent manner, because he uses the word body. Why did he die? He died, I say, because of the law. And any view of the death of Christ, which does not put it specifically and primarily in terms of the law of God, is a misinterpretation of his death. I'm referring, of course, to the people who say that his death was an accident that his death was just the result of the uh, jealousy and the cruelty of the Pharisees and scribes and, and the rest of them, that really it was no vital part of, of the process of salvation, it was just the supreme tragedy, or it was the death of a pacifist or something like that. That's how they explain it. And the sentimental view of it, that he was just showing the love of God. Now, I am ruling out all these explanations of his death because they do not put themselves before us in terms of his relationship to the law. There was only one reason why the Son of God died on the cross on Calvary's hill, and it was the law of God. Now, the apostle puts it, you remember, in writing to the Galatians, in chapter 4, in verse 4, in this way. When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, yes, made under the law. What for? To redeem them that are under the law. Now here is the whole purpose. He has come to redeem us from the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And this is the key to everything he did, and especially to his death upon the cross. How does it work, says someone? It works like this. The law cannot be ignored. The law cannot be set aside. The law is God's law, and therefore it is immutable. Everything that God does is just. It is God who's promulgated the law. He can't go back on that, otherwise he would be denying himself. Every action of God is legal, it is lawful, it is just, it is righteous, it is holy. And God's law demands that the punishment of sin 
is death. God has issued the law, and that is what he has said. The soul that sinneth, it must die, it shall die. Here then is the demand of the law of God, and the law of God is nothing but an expression of the character of God. It isn't something apart from God. It is God himself manifesting, revealing his character. That's what he was doing on Mount Sinai. Now here is the demand of the law. The soul that sinneth, it must die, and it shall die. And here therefore is the problem. We all of us have sinned, have sinned. We are all under the condemnation of the law, and the condemnation is death. The Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world to deliver us from the condemnation of the law, and this is how he has done it. He first of all put himself under the law, made of a woman made under the law. He had no need to be under the law. He was without sin. He was born holy. But he puts himself under the law. That's why he asked John the Baptist to baptize him. He's identifying himself with sinners and with us. He kept the law. He honored the law. He went to the temple. He did everything that people under the law should do. He deliberately came under the law. Why was he doing all this? Well, he came to act as our representative. He has come to act on our behalf. He has put himself in our position. He has taken our place. And in his life he rendered a perfect, positive obedience to God's law. But that alone couldn't save us. We have sinned. Our sins are there. And the sins of those who had committed them before he ever came into the world, what about them? Well, here is the answer, as you know full well. We saw it all in chapter 3, verses 25 and 26 and 27. He has taken all these upon himself. Peter puts it once and forever. In his first epistle, second chapter, verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body. Here's the same word. In his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. He died in order to bear the punishment that the law meets out upon our sin. It was the only way whereby we can be delivered. God can't play fast and loose with his own law, I say with reverence. God can't wink at it and pretend he hasn't seen it. God in his love can't say, I forgive you, without anything having happened. That would mean that God is no longer just. No, says Paul in Romans 3.26, God must be just. And at the same time, or while he is justifying him that believeth in Jesus. This is God's legal, lawful way of saving men. He does it through the body of Christ. You also have become dead to the law by or through the body of Christ. Now then, there it is. If that had not happened to him, there would be no Christianity for anybody. There'd be no salvation for anybody. There'd be no forgiveness for anybody. He was delivered for our offenses. That was the last verse in the fourth chapter of this epistle to the Romans. So that when you are asked the question, how does one become a Christian? You don't start talking about yourself or about the person. 
You say, how does one become a Christian? I'll tell you how one becomes a Christian. One becomes a Christian because at a given point in history, God sent out his own son, made of a woman, made under the law. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God's law. He honored it in every respect, but he didn't stop at that. He put himself under its punishment, under its penal aspect. Our sins he took upon himself, and God laid them on him. And then the law delivered its judgment, and he was slain and smitten. He died the death that we should have died. He died for our sins. Salvation becomes possible to us through his broken body, his shed blood. The law demanded this, and he has satisfied the law. So there is the first thing. But clearly we don't leave it at that. The Apostle mentions one other thing, and with this I close this evening. Did you notice how marvelous it is? Wherefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another. Then you'd expect him to go on to say, even to the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is what he does say, that you should be married to another, even to him that is raised from the dead. Oh, this is the other thing that had to happen. As the apostle thinks of the coming of the Son of God into this world and is going back again to heaven, he says, now then, from the standpoint of salvation, these are the two crucial things. Death, resurrection. Even unto him that is raised again from the dead. Let's be clear about this. The apostle is referring to the literal, physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave. He is not thinking like some moderns who claim to be teachers of some spiritualistic phenomenon. This wasn't some spirit body. The apostle means the literal, physical resurrection. He's talking about the body. He's used the term. The body that was crucified and buried was the body that rose. Changed, I know, but it rose. He rose in the body. There was an empty grave. Resurrection. That's what it means. And that's what the apostle means. So, as he's already told us in the last verse of chapter 4, who was delivered for our offenses, but raised again for our justification. Oh, yes, this is essential. The apostle is therefore careful to add it. He is saying that the other thing that was essential to our salvation in addition to the death is that the Lord should have arisen from amongst the dead and out of the grave, should have appeared amongst men, should have ascended to heaven, and should be at this moment in God's presence, seated at his right hand, interceding for us and on our behalf. Why is this essential to salvation? Well, for one thing, it is the final proof that what he did in his life and death is sufficient. He has answered the last demand of the law. He has conquered the last enemy, which is death. The last enemy must be conquered before you and I can be fully saved. He's done it. He's risen again. He had to rise also to give us new life in order that we might live by him and in him and on him. He had to rise again in order to present us to God. His death alone doesn't do that. 
It makes the atonement, yes, but I need to be presented to God. It is he who does that. He died to bring us to God, says the Apostle Peter. And his resurrection, of course, also guarantees that our ultimate salvation shall be complete and entire, that our bodies shall also rise and be glorified and be entirely delivered from sin in its every manifestation and in its every form. How does a man become a Christian? How is it possible for me ever to display these four characteristics of the Christian? How am I a Christian in this pulpit tonight? Thank God this is the first part of my answer. Because of something that has happened to the Son of God. I don't start with myself. What has happened to me happens because of what happened to him. We'll go on to deal with it, God willing, next Friday night. But the thing that makes us all Christians is this, that he died upon the tree. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed. But he rose again and ever liveth to make intercession for us and is the guarantee of our final and complete salvation. Well, we must break off at this, that point this evening and in a sense I'm glad that we do so because we are leaving it looking to him. These are the events, the facts, the historical happenings which are absolutely essential to salvation. We are not saved by teaching. We are not saved by ideas. We are saved by the fact that the eternal Son of God came into this world, had a literal physical body, was born of the Virgin Mary. Yes, but because he died upon that cross, was buried in our grave, and conquered it, burst asunder its bends, and rose triumphantly, and ascended unto God, and is seated now at his right hand. Blessed be his holy name. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do indeed come into thy presence with joy and with thanksgiving as we realize once more that we have been redeemed in such a manner, purchased at such a cost, at such a price, with the precious blood of Jesus, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Oh, forbid it, O oh God, that we should ever be forgetful of this. Keep our gaze, we pray thee, fixed upon him, upon his death on our behalf, his rising again for our justification. O oh Lord, forgive us that we forget so easily what he suffered and endured that we might have this life. O oh, keep us, we pray thee, ever mindful of this love that showed itself in this practical, historical manner. Keep our affections, we pray thee, O Father, by thy Spirit, upon thy blessed Son, delivered for our offenses, raised again 
for our justification. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now, this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall see him face to face, as he is, and shall be like him. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.